Hello, and welcome to a special presentation of Harper Audio Presents, recorded at the American Booksellers Association's Winter Institute in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Winter Institute is a gathering of independent booksellers, publishers, and authors. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is... I'm Jessica Shattuck, the author of The Women in the Castle, on sale on March 28th from William Morrow. Jessica Shattuck is the award-winning author of The Hazards of Good Breeding, a New York Times notable book and finalist for the Penn Winship Award, and of A Perfect Life. A graduate of Harvard University, she received her MFA from Columbia University, and she lives in Brookline, Massachusetts. Thank you for joining us. So The Women in the Castle is a terrific book. And here's a question I want to ask you. Were I to recommend this book to my sister, who I constantly recommend books to, what would you want me to say? Ooh. Well, I guess I would hope that you would be recommending it because you felt it was both a fun, or fun is the wrong word, but a compelling and enjoyable read as well as thought-provoking. So those would be things that I'd be hoping for. That would be true. It was compelling and thought-provoking, and and it was a very good story. So will you please outline the story? Yeah, so story is really important to me as a writer because I like reading plotted books, and I grew up reading Dickens, and I've always been into like a lot of plot. I like things that are thought-provoking, but I don't like that at the expense of plot. So I did spend a lot of time plotting this, and basically the story is... Um, Well, it's the story of three women who are living in an abandoned castle in the immediate aftermath of the war. And all three are German, and all three are ostensibly the widows of resistors, men who were executed for their roles in the failed 20th of July assassination attempt on Hitler's life. Um, As the plot unfolds, you realize that they're not actually exactly who they appeared to be. And they are their sort of experiences and beliefs span the gamut of the German political spectrum of that time. So they're thrown together and have to kind of come to grips with each other and who each other are and the choices they've made, as well as with their own past and the choices they made, or maybe even more importantly, the choices they didn't make. So will you tell us about each, just a little bit about each of them? So Marianne von Schneisingen, oh, she, I, that's very funny. I changed her name in the, okay, there <laughs> so you it's, go. it's Marianne von Lingenfels in the final thing, but I still sometimes think of her that way. Uh, for six years, that's how she lived in my mind. So anyway, Marianne von Lingenfels is kind of at the center of the book. She is the, um, she's the one who's related to this castle. This abandoned castle was in her husband's family. And she is a resistor in her own right and was a real partner to her husband who was executed for his role in that plot that I mentioned. Um, and she feels a moral obligation to reach out to the widows of other resistors. And there's a scene early on in the, in the preface before all of this takes place, before the war even begins, where she sort of takes on this somewhat jokingly takes on the role of being the commander of widows and orphans if all of these men, in fact, lose their lives. So she takes that seriously, though, and this is where she is at the end of the war. So she takes it upon herself to find who she can, and the first person she finds is, um, who she tracks down and finds, is her old friend uh, Connie's widow. And this is a woman she's met once or twice before, and had a somewhat 
complicated connection to maybe there was a little bit of rivalry over Connie's affection. Uh, but she goes and finds her. This is Benita. Um, and Benita is from a totally different background than Marianne, who's very aristocratic. And Benita comes from a small town and married Connie because he represented to her sort of the knight in shining armor that was going to whisk her away and give her a life of sophistication and luxury in Berlin, none of which came to pass because the war happened. But she's a very apolitical being, basically. Yeah, she's sort of flighty. And, and, yeah. and this is where Mariana is sort of like, oh, she can't. Yeah. She has trouble relating to her, right? Yeah, because- Mariana is a very serious at her core person. Um, and Benita is much more, to Marianne's eyes, superficial. In some ways, I think of Benita as actually being very deep in a, on an emotional level. And that's something that I hope comes through in the book. But um, in the beginning, you see her a little bit as Marianne does. So they go to the castle and then um, a, a slightly more distant person turns up in a nearby refugee camp. There were tons of these refugee camps at the end of the war, which was one of the things I became really interested in. But so another widow turns up who is related, who is the, who is the wife of a resistor who Marianne herself never knew really, but was a colleague of her husband's. And so she takes this woman, her name is Anya, in, and Anya has two sons who she brings in. And I should also say that Benita has a, a child and they, they all have children. Marianne has um, three children. And so they become this kind of motley crew of a family living in this abandoned castle with no running water and no electricity. And in, the, in this very desperate time in Germany where people were starving and all kinds of things were in short supply. Um, and they try to make a go of it. And then the next part of the book takes us to 1950. And then finally, you end up in the present day. So I don't know how much detail you want me to get into. I, there. I don't know that you should go more because yeah. I, want, I think that's enough to entice yeah. readers. But then it, it was so enjoyable to sort of dis- discover, to, to follow them throughout these years. I don't want you to say yeah. more. Okay. I would love to hear, though, um, I missed the presentation that you gave at our office, and we appreciate you doing that. It's somehow based on on a family somehow related to your family, and I don't know what that is. What's that story? So I'm half German, and my mother was German and grew up in the time that I'm writing about in the immediate aftermath of the war. And I grew up hearing her stories of her childhood, which were totally exotic and fascinating and strange to me, and also somewhat chastening because they involved a lot of wearing no shoes and walking five kilometers to school and not having seen an orange until she was six or chocolate. And um, so it was this, I had a, a strong awareness of that time, but not quite the context how to, how to like, where, where to put it really. Um, and I also grew up going to visit my grandparents on that farm. Um, my mother had actually left Germany for America when she was 19 and did not go back for eight years, partly because she was kind of angry at her parents and certainly angry at the country of her birth. She passed some of that on to me, but by the time I was a kid, she had reconciled with them. We'd go back. I'd spend a couple of weeks every summer on this farm. I loved my grandparents. I loved going to the farm. So I had these kind of two competing notions of being German. One was the experience of going there and loving that. And the other was this sense of shame and difficulty and an understanding that on a, on a level that changed as I got older, certainly, um, about 
Germany being responsible for World War II and mm-hmm. the difficult the responsibility I had as someone and shame of, mm-hmm. of being half German. So that's kind of the big picture background. And then as I got older, my mom passed away when I was 15. And after that, I think that sort of heightened my interest in what her background really was and what it had been like as a kid. And I spent a lot of time talking with my grandmother. And over time, I had a deeper and more complex understanding of what it meant to have been a quote-unquote ordinary German at that time. Mm -hmm. And much of what I learned was fascinating. Much of what I learned was deeply troubling. Um, And it was... It's been sort of in my mind for, I'd say, almost my whole life. Um, the resistance angle came because I, one of my mother's best friends in America, who, an upstairs neighbor in our apartment in New York when I was a kid, was the daughter of someone who was executed in the plot to oh. kill Hitler. And I went with her actually shortly after my mother's death to her mother's, this is getting a little complex here, but uh, to her mother's 80th birthday celebration, which was a big um, kind of a reunion of a lot of people who'd been involved oh. in the resistance. So I felt really... And that's sort of, that, um, is that that set piece at the end of, uh, is that in the book? Yeah, the piece, uh, uh, the, oh the, right. No, not no, really, but no. that's sort of a different thing. But I mean, yes, that idea of bringing a lot of people together from yeah. that time. And yeah. I was really moved and struck by that at the time. And I was also really aware of the um, this other kind of experience that there here were people who were descended from Germans who had been heroes rather than mm-hmm. complicit mm-hmm. and uh, you know shameful sort of enablers um, and I, I those two ends of the spectrum were always really in, they they kind of are a foil for each other the resistance certainly is a foil for everyone who was complicit and those two things come to bear in my book and what eventually happens, I'm not giving anything away, is that that black and that white really does become gray. And you help us through these characters sort of see that gray and appreciate that a lot of life is that gray, that it's very hard to stay firmly, you know, um, on one side, whether it's opinion or actions, right? It, it, yeah. I thought that that was very deftly handled, the way that we have empathy for those that that aren't 100% good because it's very rare, right? Yeah, I mean, I hope that it does. I feel like I, I definitely wanted this book to take place in the gray areas of around the edges of the Holocaust and World War II because I feel like much of what we read, at least in American fiction, but I think even to some extent in Germany and in, in, in German is... Um, at the sort of dark epicenter, yeah. the stories of the victims or the stories of the heroes and the things that are unfolding in the concentration camps, where it's almost, it becomes marginalized by its extremity. I think you're And right, yeah. I feel like I really wanted to explore the lives of people around the edges of this and try to understand in a way that is, to me, that's almost, uh, it's, it's going to be very helpful in helping us prevent things from happening again if we kind of understand those those relatable elements as opposed to only the horrific extremes. Yeah, and the sort of somewhat overwhelming where we say, oh, well, that was then, this, yeah. that would never happen again. And when you, when you really bring it down to such a human level and those sort of daily choices, okay, what do I do when the soldiers have come to the farm and they say that they're hungry and there is the horse? I mean, that yeah. scene is one of the strongest scenes in the book where 
you know, they have to make a decision about what they're going to do when they basically ask to eat that horse. Yeah. Yeah, and that's actually something that really did happen on my grandparents' farm. The context and everything in the story is totally different, but there were um, Russian prisoners of war who came to the farm and they had to kill the horse to feed them. Um, So that was interesting. But I also think, yeah, I think that is um, those daily choices that often people don't even know the import of what... Nobody's telling you, you don't wake up one morning and hear like, this is what you will be remembered for for all of history. Your nation is at this point. Yeah. And... You make your choice, and you don't know necessarily. Yeah, if it I mean, was. it's a crazy thing to think that publishing this book right now is—it's ever so much more important than you know a few months ago, because this is exactly what we all need to be contemplating and and aware of. And you brought it to us in a in a beautiful book of fiction, but I really do feel like the themes of this book are hugely relevant to everything that's happening today. Well, thank you. I feel like that is a. Um, it's sort of sad that that is the case. I agree. I agree. <laughs> but thank goodness. I think it's true, and more so now, even than I when I started talking about it three months ago. Right. So. Right. All right. So you've now birthed this book that you worked on mm. for for seven years. How has it changed you? Wow. Good question. Um, well, I think. writing a historical novel seemed really daunting to me when I took this on. And as it turned out, um, I found the research fascinating and I'm still doing it even though I've written the book. I can't (laughs) stop reading new books and things, you know, about that time. And it kind of opened a whole new horizon for me. I think, and I have a vague idea of something I might think of next. And it's also um, at least partly historical. So I feel like it kind of changed me as a writer in terms of opening my frame of reference to a much greater uh, degree. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. That, your, that your sort of whole approach to your work has yeah. been changed by it. Yeah, that's, yeah it that's kind of, cool. it, it widened, the, widened the canvas or something. That's cool. But I think it also maybe changed me in that I certainly thought I, I'm in a much more um, educated and thoughtful place about my heritage and what it meant and what it means to be German, mm-hmm. then I, I, th- I think it's always been something that's I'm really I have been interested in and grappled with. But I feel like my understanding has deepened a lot. That's nice. All right, so I'm going to ask you sort of some yeah. general questions that don't need serious answers. So just go ahead and an- answer them off mm-hmm. the top of your head. What natural gift would you most like to possess as a writer? Oh, um, what I mo- most like to possess as a writer. Uh, well, I love metaphor, and I think it's so helpful at understanding all kinds of things because if you can liken one experience or thing to another, you can start to relate to it more. So I think that's a gift that I'd like. And when and where are you most happiest as a writer? In the library with my headphones on playing the white noise app that I also use to put my kids to sleep. <laughs> Which library do you use? I go to the Brookline Public Library. But I've written in a lot of different libraries and libraries are an amazing resource and I find it, that they're, for me, it's, it's a wonderful um, place to work because I like the energy of the people around me working yeah. quietly and everyone sort of being together, but every, it's in an introverted way. Yes, yeah, you like being around yeah. the nerds in the library. That's that's good. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> now I'm asking about, I have this weird question where I say, what are your favorite names as a writer? And it's just led to this sort of broad conversation yeah. around names. And I'm very interested because you've hmm. already volunteered 
that for six years, yeah. you had a surname that then got changed. What's, yeah. what's the story with that? Okay, so that is um, the, the character of Marianne von Schneisingen was always Marianne von Schneisingen in my mind. The name just came to me. It, in German, it's sort of translated as singing snow, and I thought that was kind of interesting, and I liked it's very... Um, complex German sounding. It's got a lot of consonants and it's, uh, it's very difficult to pronounce if you don't, if you haven't heard it pronounced. So was that the problem? Um, so that was kind of ultimately the problem <laughs> because it was like readers are going to have a little trouble with his name every time they see it. You're not sure how to say it. So ultimately we changed it. Um, but my favorite names as a writer, like in general, yeah, what just, are my favorite it was names? Just, it's led to a, a really interesting conversation about how people... Select names. Mm. I learned that one author keeps a list of names on her phone, huh. like so that when she comes across something, and another yeah. saves old phone books, so that it was just I. Yeah. It's a question that I would never have asked before, and it really is interesting. Yeah, that's funny. I guess I feel very much like my characters always come to me fully named, fully named, like and they're the just right just there, drops yeah. in. And how often do you change those names? Not that often. This was kind of unusual. But I will tell a funny story, which is that there was a very small character in my first book who um, his name you know, came to me like most of the names, just very fully formed. And then my husband was reading a draft of it and he said, why did you put this character's name in your book? Oh, was it, was it <laughs> and a it person? turned out it was somebody that I knew very peripherally, but I hadn't really been, thi- you know, it was not, he wasn't in my mind in a conscious way, oh, that's so but I had funny. actually used his name. So. Thank goodness he was yeah, there. Yes, thank goodness it got So that leads way. me to another question is, who, who is your first, who are your first readers? Who are your most trusted readers that you give your pages to? Uh, well, my husband is usually um, first, and I know he's not going to give me the most, um, critical read, but he's a very good reader and he's not, um, he won't just say, oh, you know, everything is great. So he'll give um, me some good questions. And he comes at it, he's not a big reader of fiction. What's he, his profession? He works in business. So it's not, I'm getting a read from somebody who's just reading as most readers come yeah, to a book. exactly. Sort of at uh, the Not end with of the some day, kind of expertise. Kind of yeah. Wants to read yeah, a good story. Yeah, <laughs> so he's usually first. And then right now I'm in a writer's group, which is really helpful because we can use each other for sounding boards on things that we're or working on, or issues around writing, but also to read each other's work. And do you have an experience with an independent bookstore that has influenced you or delighted you, or that you really just sort of want to say a note of, or a story of appreciation for, for booksellers? Well, I love Brookline Booksmith, which is my local bookstore, and it's kind of like a mini department store almost, in that it has... It has a uh, used book section downstairs. It's got all the, it's got everything you want upstairs. New books. It's also got a whole gift area full of socks and trinkets and scarves and kids' toys. And um, I love how it is always bustling. And it opens at nine in the morning, and it's already there are people in there, and it feels like a real community center. Um, so I love that. I also I also really love a good small town bookstore, which really serves the purpose of providing events and community. When I lived in Norwich, Vermont, the Norwich bookstore was Mm -hmm. like that. And I Mm -hmm. did a great reading there once that was like fabulously well attended. Um, And it was partly because it was like, that's what you did on a Wednesday night. It was there, it was there. And and that was, I really, that was a great, I feel like they perform a really great service to the community. Yeah, they're the linchpin of that community. Yeah, Yeah, that's cool. So what are you working on now? 
Uh, right now, mostly stuff around this book and connected to it. Um, I'm trying to write a little bit about uh, about my uh, nonfiction, a little bit about my experience of being German and my oh, interviews with my an, grandmother. Oh. Um, not a book, a shorter piece. Um, but I have I have an idea for a novel percolating in the background. So I'm, yeah. So how are you finding? the process of being published, you know, all that you are asked to do in support of the book and, and, and just the effort that is made now at this stage once the book is right. about to go on sale. Well, to be honest, I think I feel extremely privileged. I feel like I'm so lucky that I am able to do what I love to do and not that every day I get up and it's a pure joy to be writing, but Generally, the big picture is that I really love it. And to have found a home for a book that I love and care about and a home that is excited about it and is asking me to go out and do things for it and, and talk about it, to me, feels like a real gift. Okay, great. And we receive it as such. So thank you very much. Uh, we, we love the book. Thank you. And thanks for, thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks for listening. All of the books you've heard mentioned here are available at your independent bookstore. And if you like what you've heard, please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents.